Say with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Is anyone uh, wine drinkers out there? Hope, hopefully not any of the teenagers. Um, if you're not wine drinkers, this first uh, story might make me sound a little snobbish, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and share it anyway. Um, I, do, I do like uh, a good wine with my meals, and you know I'm a, I'm a studier, and I'm someone who likes to learn and to know more things, and so I know a little bit about wine, and I like to study and, and, and educate myself on, on wine tasting. So last month uh, was Katie, my wife and I's 11th anniversary. And in celebration, we went out to a really nice dinner. Probably spent a little too much money, but uh, it, was a, it was a nice dinner. The restaurant invited a winemaker from Napa Valley to come and do wine pairings with the meal and to talk about her wine. So it was a really nice experience and it was, it was a fun time for us. And if you do know anything about wine from Napa Valley, um, she, of course, had some really good Cabernet Sauvignon and some Cabernet Franc and Merlot, these big red wines that Napa Valley is famous for. And if you know about uh, Napa Valley, then also they're famous for their oaked Chardonnay, which is probably my least favorite wine, if I'm being honest. So no offense to any Chardonnay drinkers out there. But the biggest surprise of the night was her white wine. And she didn't have Chardonnay. She had Albreño, which is a really rare Spanish wine that I hardly ever see in the States, and I don't think I've ever seen grown in the United States. So it was interesting, and she told a story about it. She's a new um, winemaker who bought a vineyard out in Napa Valley. So as expected, she did have some Chardonnay on the farm there. But like me, she is not a big fan of Chardonnay. So as she was traveling around and visiting other winemakers in different regions, she found someone who was growing this Spanish grape, Albreño, and it made a really great wine. So she decided that she was going to take some from that farm and bring it on, onto hers. So rather than starting over and tearing up those Chardonnay vines that had been on the farm for generations, what she did is she took clippings off of the branches of that Albreño, and she brought that back and grafted it onto the Chardonnay vines. And as a result, the health of those vines that had been on her farm and used to the climate were able to transfer over to this new wine, the Albreño. And yet also, the Albreño, which had been growing on this other farm, was able to have a maturity that she wouldn't be able to get for years as if she had started over from scratch and planted new Albreño from seeds. And so the grafting enabled her to take the grapes from one climate and bring them into another and have an abundant and fruitful and healthy new crop of grapes in only a matter of a couple of years, much shorter than it would have taken otherwise. And this is a great example of what we get in our passage from Romans today, a passage that compares grafting of branches from one farm to another to the way that the Gentiles were grafted into the Jewish people. Now, if you're like me, you know, I live in Cleveland. So, you know, urban environment, I'm not really surrounded by farms. I've never been a farmer. Um, agricultural references don't mean a lot to me necessarily. So maybe some of you are like that, um, which is why I bring in the story of drinking wine, because that's kind of the only reference point that I have with that. <laughs> But sometimes I think 
you know, I always try to bring in illustrations from our culture. You know, maybe it's phone and technology and computers and cars, work. But sometimes I think it's important for us to sit with the illustrations of the Bible itself. And the Bible is steeped in these agricultural references. Israel was an agricultural society, so it was part of their commerce and economy. So the Bible often talks about farms and gardens and shepherds and vineyards and vine dressers. And I think it's important to really sit with those metaphors and try to understand them as best we can. Today in Romans, we, we read about an olive tree. And then in the gospel, we hear about a vineyard with grapes. And these are two important features of Israel's culture and society. Not only does the fruit bring nourishment and food, but olives from the olive tree make olive oil, which is used in the church to anoint. We still do that today. And they anointed kings. And so olives were this very important part of their life. Likewise, uh, grapes make wine, of course. But in the ancient world, wine wasn't just drunk on special occasions. But because back then water had a lot of bacteria, wine was a staple of their diet because it was safer to drink the fermented grape than it would have been water. But likewise, they used it for feasts and celebrations. So think in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first miracle. He goes to a wedding, and they run out of wine, and it's a scandal. And so Mary pleads with Jesus, you got to do something or this is going to be shameful. So Jesus turns water to wine as his first miracle. And likewise, wine was religiously important because they drank it every Sabbath as a way to honor the Sabbath as God had commanded to them. And it was the center of the Seder meals at their most important religious festival, the Passover, where they drank wine. So wine and all of these images would have been really important for Israel and their culture. And the agriculture and the gardening and farming of these grapes and olives would have been something very familiar with them. And so we should sit with them and allow that to think, to help us think about what, what does it mean? Why does the Bible place so much significance on these? And as we think about that, really farming and agriculture in the Bible is a metaphor for who we are and what we're supposed to be. So if you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, God actually made us to be gardeners, right? He put us in the Garden of Eden, and the first thing that Adam and Eve are to do is to garden, to cultivate the garden, to help the plants to grow and be more abundant and more fruitful. And the first command God gives them is to be fruitful and multiply. So we see from the very beginning there's this link between what gardens and plants do and what humans are called to do. Like the plant brings forth fruit that we can eat and nourish and bring life, we as humans are meant to bring life to participate in God's creation and the flourishing of the planet and to grow and to further that life and, and bear fruit ourselves. And so you see this all the time in Scripture. If you look at Psalm 1, it's the introduction to all the Psalms, and this imagery is there. It says that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of living waters, and it'll bear fruit in season. But the unrighteous, the wicked, are like chaff that don't have a root, and they're blown away. And so there's this comparison that humans are like trees, and we're meant to produce fruit. So this image of grafting that Paul uses in our passage from Romans, what is it saying? It's saying that if we're like trees that bear fruit, then God is like the farmer, like the gardener. 
And just like that winemaker who took branches from another vineyard to bring in so that it would bear a new and good and abundant healthy fruit, so God can graft branches that aren't bearing fruit and take them off and bring in something new so that they can that humanity, that God's people can fulfill our purpose of bearing fruit in the world and carrying out God's flourishment and life and abundance. So let's back up again and get the bigger picture of where we are at in Romans. We're looking at Romans 9 through 11 this summer. The big question is, what about Israel? How does Israel fit into the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we saw how Despite Israel's failings, God has not abandoned his promise, but has been faithful to his people all along. And that Israel's call was out of his own grace, not because they deserved it, but his grace toward them. And now his grace has been extended in Jesus Christ. So in Romans 10, we read that there's no longer a distinction between Greek and Jew, but that all people can be part of God's kingdom, can be part of God's people that all who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so now faith in Jesus Christ is the grace that grafts us into God's people. And last week, uh, Paul looked at the question in Romans 11, then he says, okay, so there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So does that mean that God rejected his people and gave up on them? And his answer, if you recall, was by no means, absolutely not. And the bishop was here last week. I listened to his sermon. I thought it was really good. I hope you all enjoyed it and uh, benefited from his word. Uh, but he, he went through that text with us and show how it started with Paul's biography. And he says, you know, I myself am a Jew. God hasn't abandoned his people. Look, I'm right here. And so Jesus was a Jew. And many of his first followers were a Jew. And so there's this idea of the remnant and that God is preserving a faithful remnant within his people. But then there's also this idea that God's people are expanding out now in Jesus Christ. And I really liked how the bishop um, emphasized that. You know, he talked about how, to us, it can feel sometimes like God's people are shrinking. And we see churches closing, and we see the culture changing, and it can feel like it's getting smaller. But when we look at the biblical picture, and he took us all the way to the end of Revelation, the idea is that God's kingdom and people are expanding outward so that eventually people from every tribe and people and language and nation will be before the throne of God praising him. And so what Paul presents is that God has not rejected his people, rather he's expanding and outgrowing his people as a result of his promise and his grace. So again, that brings us to our passage this morning, and Paul asks, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? And we get again, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Putting a conclusion on that thought we had from last week. But he goes on to say that the Gentiles being grafted in, that language of, of farming that we get, is to make Israel jealous. And so that Israel one day will also come back in and be part of the people of God. So again, we have this idea of the remnant and the expansion of God's people. But he can, Paul concludes this idea with saying that eventually the Jewish people are going to come back and going to put a kind of finality, if you will, to the expansion of his people. 
So he says, now, if Israel's trespass meant riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? One of the implications of this that I want to bring out, which is kind of unfortunate because I feel like it shouldn't have to be said, but there's a long history of the church of anti-Semitism. It goes back to the early, early days of Christianity. As Christianity spread throughout the Roman world, some of the Gentile Christians began to see Jews as second-class citizens. And because a lot of the Jews rejected Jesus, they actually began to persecute the Jews and see them as a problem, as unrighteous, as part of a failure. And so that continued throughout the church, and even some of our heroes, like Martin Luther, sadly bought into that mindset. But that's exactly what Paul is addressing in Romans in this passage. Paul's writing to the church in Rome which was mostly made up of Gentile believers. And so already in those early days, there were some that were saying, well, Israel's failed, and we can move on, right? They're, they're, they're no longer the people of the promise. But Paul says, no, God is not done with his people. And he says that there's a remnant, that Paul himself is a Jew, that Jesus was a Jew. And so for us today, there's no place for us to look down on the Jewish people. And rather, he says, that our salvation should be a means to make them jealous and bring them back in. And so there's this importance that's easy to, I think, forget in today's world, but that we need to emphasize that as Christians, we should be kind toward our Jewish neighbors, not harsh or mean or seeing them as second class. Rather, we should use our kindness to share the good news with them and to pray for God's favor upon them and for God to redeem them and have mercy on them. And in doing so, we will be fulfilling the gospel message as Paul lays it out here in Romans 11 and the expansion of God's people and the bringing back of Israel in as well. And so he says in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now share in the flourishing of the root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So again, we come back to this idea that God's people are called by God's grace. And it's not about us and that we're better or more deserving than any other people, but that it's God's grace upon us. And so we need to be careful of feeling like we're somehow better than our Jewish neighbors or any of our other neighbors for that matter. And there's no place for arrogance or pride, rather humility. Humility in realizing that God in his grace has accepted us despite the fact that we are sinners. And so we get this image of the grafting that I talked about at the beginning. And here we see that, unlike the winemaker in my story who, who just wanted Albreno because she liked the grape better, the other reason as a farmer that you would graft is if your tree or your vine is healthy and yet it's not producing fruit for some reason. And so grafting becomes a way that you can preserve the health of the root and the vine but bring in a new branch that will then be fruitful and bring a good harvest. And so that's the image that we get. So when we consider that imagery, again, like I said, and try to dwell in it and grasp what it means, Paul is saying that we have been grafted 
in order to bear fruit. The point of it is not to simply become better and say, you know, I'm righteous and you're not. The point is that we would bear fruit, that we would become life givers and creators and share in God's nourishing plan for the world. So if we look at that in the context of Paul's bigger picture, one of my favorite passages of the Bible is Galatians 5. I'm sure many of you know it. He uses this same imagery of um, not grafting, but of fruit bearing and its relationship to humans. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So when we look here in Romans that we have been grafted in to become God's people, what are we called to do? We're called to walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. He famously said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. This is why we were grafted in. And so again, there's no place for pride thinking that we're better. Rather, we're to bear this fruit. We're to walk in the steps with the Spirit and bringing about God's purposes for humanity that have been there since the very beginning. And so within this passage, there becomes a warning, right? He says, Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So this can be a hard word to hear on the one hand, but it's sobering to recognize why were we grafted in. What is the point of our salvation? It's to fulfill God's project since the very beginning, to make a people who will flourish and make the world and other people to bring new life and to walk in step with the Spirit. So he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Last week, the bishop gave a great message on God's kindness, if you recall. You know, he said that when he was, for a time, not being faithful to God, and he had fallen away, and he was really just living in his own pleasures and his own ways. And he said that people would come up to him and talk to him about being a sinner, and he said that didn't have any impact on him because he knew he was a sinner, and so shame didn't bring him anything. So when we hear about the kindness and the severity of God, we need to be careful not to allow it to, to shame us and to feel like we're unworthy because God is kind. And the bishop said that he quoted that famous passage that the kindness of the Lord brings us to repentance. And talks, he talked about how it was kindness that caused him to change his mind and turn around and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace. But we have to say a word about that severity of God. God is kind and has welcomed us in, but we need to make sure that we remain in his kindness. So that's the idea that I want us to think about today. What does it mean to remain in God's kindness? A lot of times what we're looking for, right, we want a sermon to have like a practical, okay, what do I go out and do tomorrow? And we want a to-do list and a checklist, but we need to be careful that we're not turning it into a new law, something that we have to do in order to keep our salvation. Rather, what we're commanded to do is both more simple 
and more profound. We're to remain in God's kindness. So let's look at John, our passage, our gospel from today, John 15. We see Jesus using the same imagery as Paul. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. So we get this same idea and this same image and this same warning that if we're not fruitful, we too can be cast away. His language is even stronger, right? Because he says the, we're going to cut off like branches that wither and they're going to be burned in the fire. So what does he tell his disciples to do? What is he telling us to do? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do we live and be fruitful and multiply as our first commandment was? How do we live into this vision of being a fruitful people? The answer is abiding in Jesus, staying connected to him at all times, remaining in his grace and love. In Galatians, Paul says to walk in step with the Spirit. And as I think about that, I wanted to share with you all the, the, one of the best examples that I can think of of what it means to abide, to remain in Jesus at all times. And it's the example of Brother Lawrence. I don't know if any of you have heard of Brother Lawrence, but he, there's a little book about him slash by him. Uh, it's kind of part of biography and part quotes for him. But it's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a really thin, it's an easy read. I think you can even find it online. So if you've never heard of it, I encourage you. It's one of the texts that has inspired my spiritual life the most. And what Brother Lawrence said and did and why he's remembered is because he became a, he became a, a practicer of the presence of God. And he always carried with him that the presence of God was very near to him. And that his responsibility as a Christian wasn't to be so great or so good or to think lots of things, but was simply to remain in the presence of God at all times. And so Brother Lawrence isn't like, say, Thomas Aquinas, that I'm sure you've heard of, that have written tomes and massive books. He wasn't a famous theologian. He wasn't a pope. He was actually the cook in the kitchen at the monastery and spent his life as a humble servant. And yet, in the midst of that, he was able to carry this sense that no matter what he did, God was with him. And to merely be aware of the presence of God in his life allowed him to be someone who bore much fruit. And popes actually came and visited him for advice as a humble cook and later shoemaker. And this is a summary of his thought. He said, the most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment without limiting the conversation in any way. Like I said, very simple and yet profound. How do we stay in God's kindness and not be tossed off as a branch that doesn't bear fruit? How do we live fruitful lives? 
simple, unceasing prayer. <laughs> Which, again, simple but profound and challenging. If you're anything like me, I, I haven't mastered that practice of the presence of God. I frequently forget that God is with me. I get caught up in my cares and concerns. So unceasing prayer feels like something weighty and far and far off and difficult. But why I love the example of Brother Lawrence is, again, that he was just a common cook who did everyday practices. And so that little book is full of little wisdom and insight as to how he keeps that constant contact and prayer with God. So another quote by him. The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, with several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees. So that's what it means to abide in God. Abiding in Jesus' love is day by day, moment by moment. A lot of times when we think of prayer, we think of like our morning time for a lot of us probably, right? We wake up in the morning, we set aside some time, read scripture, and pray on our knees. Or we pray before a meal, or we have our church services and our set times of prayer. But what Brother Lawrence encourages us to think about is that prayer is more than that. Abiding in Jesus means on your way into the office, as you're doing work, as you're talking with your family and your classmates and your peers and your friends, as you're going about your day eating and preparing a meal, that in all of those to have an awareness and recognition of God and his presence with us, to abide with Jesus in the everyday mundane acts of life. And if we can do that, then we will bear much good fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control will come out of us and grow out of us, not because we're so good or not because of something we do, but because we're abiding in Jesus, who is the vine that brings that fruit out in us. And again, thinking about unceasing prayer, and I imagine for a lot of you, that feels like something far off that maybe even feels unattainable. But we should be careful lest we think that it's a burden and something difficult. So hear these words again from Jesus in, in John chapter 15. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. As difficult as it might seem to some of us, a life abiding in Jesus, practicing the presence of God, is a life that brings us joy. Because going back to Genesis, this is who we were created to be. And so we'll, as the more we can do this, the more we can moment by moment, day by day, even in the mundane things, turn our attention to the presence of God with us and abide with Jesus, then it will be a life that is full of joy and good things and what God has designed us to be. So let me conclude with an, one last quote from Brother Lawrence. God does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings. 
at other times to thank him for the graces past and present he has bestowed on you. In the midst of your troubles, to take some solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is, never, he is nearer to us than we think. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that you are the vine dresser and the vine, and that you produce fruit in us. Lord, we desire that fruit. We desire your spirit to bring about in us those good things which you have prepared for us. And sometimes that can feel burdensome for how far off we are from it. And yet, we know that you are near to us, and your spirit is in us. And so we pray that you would take away hindrances and that you would remind us of your presence and help us to abide in your love. And we pray that as we do so, we would bear good fruit and that we would live into the plans that you have for us and the life that you've created us to be. And that as your son Jesus has promised, that we would have joy and our joy would be complete. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.